Greetings, greetings, fellow Who-gazers, and welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the target novelizations in publication order. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. Our journey is taking a slight detour this week, as is customary for me on this podcast. Whenever I finish two full years' worth of target books, I take a one-week break from reading, and I give you a bonus episode. The bonus episodes can come from anywhere that I choose. After all, I answer to no one. There is no bottom line. There is no sponsor. There is nobody here but me. And I'm going at a pretty breakneck pace doing a book a week. As I said when I was talking to Graham Burke last week in episode 38, if I were to make this a monthly podcast with about 160 target books, you would never get to the end of the show. And of course, uh, we all want to have a finish line in sight, so I'm keeping to a book a week. The one benefit that I'll give myself as my own podcast employer is to have that one break every three or four months. And this is that break. We are in between the 1977 and the 1978 books. Last week was the longest episode I've had to date, and we had two amazing guests. We had Graham Burke from Reality Bomb. Wasn't he amazing? And we had Philip Hinchcliffe, the author of Mask of Mandragora. Isn't he just wonderful and phenomenal? The week before that, episode 37, I had two guests on at the same time, Kate Orman and John Blum, and we took a look at Talons of Wang Chiang, which I can tell you is the most popular episode that I've done to date. And this week, we're going to go off on a little bit of a detour. Like I said, we're not looking at any one particular book. We do have one guest, and most of the hour will be given over to uh, my interview. But let's take a look at some viewer mail first. We have an email from Kevin Hush. Hope I'm pronouncing the last name right. Now, my previous guests have all announced their location. You all remember Carl in Rosemead. That's in Los Angeles County. And of course, who could forget Toby from Houston? Kevin does not tell us where he's from. Kevin is an international man of mystery, I suppose. Could be in America. Could be in the UK. I've had listeners from about 20 different countries so far, so he could be from any one of them. Kevin says, First of all, I truly enjoy all the book analysis, the guests, and the games. Thank you, Kevin. The games especially are a lot of fun. I know there's been a little bit of uh, discontent on Twitter because I have not had games the last two weeks. One does not play games with Philip Hinchcliffe. And I just didn't have time with the episodes getting as long as they were. I do not have a game this week either, but I promise they are returning next week for episode 39. Back to the email. Kevin writes, by the time you receive this, you should be in the books of 1978. Ha! Kevin, if you only knew. You caught me right in the middle of 1977 and 1978. Back to the email. My question is, are you going to have special episodes talking about the factual books of Doctor Who? The Making of Doctor Who came out back in 1976, the first of many, and L'Officier, 1981, and Haining, 1983, are just as famous as Dix and Hulk. Of course, who doesn't have a worn copy of the Discontinuity Guide? Just asking. Your older brother-in-arms, Kevin. That's a pretty bold statement. As my daughter likes to remind me, there aren't too many people out there older than me now that I am almost on the cusp of turning 50. Kevin, I expect, is probably a smidge older than I am. 
if I knew where he was. Maybe I had more. Maybe I'd have more information. So, Kevin, thank you very much for the email. Really appreciate the compliments and the praise. Um, I have thought a little bit about the factual books. I am taking my cues primarily from the Wikipedia uh, page on the Target Books list list of Doctor Who novelizations. Now, that page for the longest time did go in publication order. Somebody, probably with the express purpose of vexing your old pal Jason, actually went into that page probably a week or two or three after this podcast launched, probably early December 2021, and I launched maybe a few weeks before that. Somebody went in and fully reorganized the page, so now the books are done in story order and separated out by doctor. You can no longer look at that Wikipedia page and see which books came out in strict chronological order. So what I've done is I've bookmarked an older version of the page from early December before my nemesis, whoever that may be, went in and changed it. And I'm looking at an old, now nearly a year old copy of the Wikipedia page on list of Doctor Who novelizations. And I'm just going down that list in order. Interestingly, whoever programmed that list did not include any of the nonfiction books. Now, not all of those are targets. Uh, the Peter Haney book, A Celebration, which I do have, that's an oversized hardcover. That, I think, was done by W.H. Allen, which is Target's parent company. There's also, of course, the separate line of Doctor Who hardcovers. Um, the, the Making of Doctor Who, again, not sure if that was a Target. I don't have the original. I do have the second edition of that, the Terrence Dix version. Not sure that merits a full episode. The one that I'm most tempted to talk about is the Lefissier Program Guide. Now, the original one came out in two volumes. There was the Red Book, which was the Program Guide, and then the Blue Book, which was the Encyclopedia slash Index. Uh, the Red Book, of course, I read and annotated and wore my copy into the ground. And then when a second version came out, I think around 1989, I annotated the heck out of that copy Uh those books have practically fallen to dust. I do not have those books um, in my current home. I have all the Target books in the same place, but all the nonfiction books I think are in my in-law's garage uh, across a couple of rivers from here, so I haven't seen them in a long time. Uh, ditto for my copy of the Discontinuity Guide. Uh, when I have the urge to look at that, which is not all the time, I do have a Kindle copy. Yes, I have two copies of the Discontinuity Guide. Um, Discontinuity Guide comes from a very interesting moment in fandom in the 1990s when the uh, big-name fans at the time were reevaluating the received wisdom, which came to us from the Peter Haining book. Discontinuity Guide is very much, not so much in conversation with, but in direct opposition to the Peter Haining slash Jeremy Bentham chapter material in a celebration. What's interesting about the Discontinuity Guide is that book is now pushing 30 years old. And the opinions in that book certainly uh, would have to be, I think, reevaluated and reexamined today. And most of that is now being done on Twitter and on podcasts rather than in book form. I think there's a lot to discuss about those books. I'm just not sure that this uh, literature podcast is the vehicle to do that. Maybe a bonus episode in the months and weeks and years to come. But for now, uh, thank you for the email, Kevin. I pretty much plan on sticking to fiction. After I finish the last of the Target novelizations, I don't know what I'm going to do next, but fortunately I have a couple of years before I have to worry about that. So, without further ado, I'm going to introduce my guest for the week, 
you know him very well from online fandom, you know him from the DVDs, you know him from pretty much everywhere, and you know him most particularly from his blog, Escape to Danger, which is basically the original blog, I won't say father or grandfather, but I will say great uncle or perhaps a godfather of this podcast. It's Mr. Jim Sangster. He is covering the books in publication order, the same way that this podcast covers the books in publication orders. But unlike me, he is almost at the end of his journey, his very long journey. Let's get to it. So, as I always do, every time I finish two full years of Target books on the podcast, I take a week off of the books, but I keep the podcast going with a so-called bonus episode. This week, I am very happy to have on, for the first and hopefully not the last time, Jim Sangster, who has done many, many things in his life, Doctor Who-related, and is currently running the Escape to Danger blog, which goes through the Target Books in publication order, which will seem very familiar to to those of you following my podcast for the last nine months. I was going to do an introduction of Jim's accomplishments, and then I came up with a script that was about as long as this episode will be. So I need to do a very, very brief summary rather than an exhaustive accounting. You have seen Jim on many of the DVDs. You have uh, read his short stories. You have heard his voice on a couple of big finishes. In other words, if there's anything Doctor Who fandom related over the last few decades, Jim has been behind it. Jim, welcome to the program. Wow. Yeah. It just shows me how much of my life has been wasted, really. But uh, thank you very much. (laughs) Have I missed any of your signature accomplishments that you want to tell our audience about before we go forward? I think it, just to add to the eye rolling of, you know, just to add to the eye rolling of, oh, it's him again. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been a contributor for Doctor Who magazine for um, about 14 years, 15 years, a regular one as the toy reviewer. So every Christmas I do a roundup of the toys. Um, also a picture researcher, because that used to be something I did professionally. So um, for the Doctor Who DVDs, uh, you'll often see a, um, with thanks to credit because I've done picture research for that. And the same with Doctor Who magazine, just because I've, I've got that sort of brain that when they say we need a photo of actor X, I go, I, I know which one you need and uh, I know which program to go through. Um, but very, you know, like a lot of enthusiastic fans, I've, I've been very lucky to be in the right place at the right time. So, um, well, I joined fandom when I was about 14 years old and immediately wanted to start writing for the local fan magazine. And then uh, I was involved in organizing conventions. So um, for British people, the, the, one of the biggest conventions in the UK was the Manopticon um, Manchester-based conventions. And I was on the um, organizing committee for those for many years. Uh, and yeah, I've just been sort of a hanger-on for forever. <laughs> so... And, and obviously with the pandemic happening, I needed something to do. <laughs> so that's when I decided to read all the books, because that's a sane thing to keep, you, keep your brain uh, going, Very so. similar to me. I use the pandemic as an excuse to ramp up my podcasting activities, starting with a guest host appearance on Trap 1 about three months into the pandemic. And then that escalated, and then I decided I wanted my own show, and I've been doing this for... 
about nine months now, and I've been able to keep the pace up weekly, which I doubt I'd have been able to do had I been reporting to the office five days a week for the last two and a half years. So I think a lot of people have to blame the pandemic for the explosion of Doctor Who-related content, both blogs and podcasts. I think I think the smart people saw the pandemic as an opportunity to learn. So, uh, you know, we've all been, I mean, I, I've, I had a, an old blog many, many years ago, but using this system now, it's, I think it's WordPress. Um, in fact, no, I know it's WordPress. I don't know why I say I think it is. It's WordPress. <laughs> um, and just learning my way around that. And I've also learned 3D printing um to some successful degree and then recently my 3d printer packed up so that's clearly the end of the pandemic um and just keeping you i i've always had projects i've always been a sort of creative little bunny so as well as writing reviews of the toys i got into customizing toys many years ago and learning different media to to use to customize toys and make cloaks or paint or sculpt and so that's another thing that I've, you know, people used to, I used to frequent the forums uh, just for the toys and talk about how to customize them and learn so much about that. And then learn Photoshop because fans were learning how to do video covers and DVD covers. And then I ended up using Photoshop professionally. I trained people at the BBC how to use Photoshop for many years. So ju- just because I wanted to know how to do a cover for the Android invasion. <laughs> That's not the story that you figure would provoke a lot of creative activity. The Android invasion. Well, it's it's one of the hardest ones because there's hardly any photographs, so I had to be creative on it and you know learn how to take details out of the background of a shot and um, merge that with a, a nice photo of Tom Baker and a, that photo of Stigron. Uh, yeah, it's and also because I was friends with uh, Clayton Hickman and Lee Binding, so as they were learning on the job, they were saying this is how I achieved like the, the sort of the sunburst effect of light that Clayton was very famous for, and then later on, learning how to kind of paint, uh, not to the same sophistication that Lee Binding does, but um, I was able to use that for some Radio Four dramas to illustrate the the website. So there was a stack of Toby Haydock's um, dramas for Radio 4 that had very deliberate references to Chris Achilleos or to um, Jeff Cummins in, in, the, in the template of the design, uh, which only me and him got. It's been interesting for me going through the books in publication order and looking at the evolution of the covers. I've already exited the Christos Achilleos era. And I went through the Mike Little years, and now I am just reaching the first Jeff Cummins covers. You can see that I have Face of Evil in front of me for a recording next week. And that, I believe, was Jeff Cummins' first cover going in publication order? I think it was, yeah. It's, and I've always loved that. It's, um, I mean, that was the cover I was copying for, um, for one of Toby's dramas, specifically. Just the circular motif and the idea of something stepping out of it and a big head in the background. And, and similar to a Tomb of the Cybermen, which is also coming out. Yeah. That's also Jeff Cummins. So I've got a handful of Jeff right now. <laughs> and it's a similar sort of idea to what Alistair Pearson later on did with the, the kind of a window onto the, the world. Um, I referenced that in the um, Ghostlight entry. In the, you know, it's a similar sort of thing with like the companion in one frame and the doctor 
Doctor's face large and elements of the world sort of interspersed in the frame. Um, and I think I think Face of Evil is stunning. It's one of my favorite covers of all time. Uh, you mentioned that also, I think, for the survival cover, which has uh, the cover divided into segments by the uh, claws of a cat, and each one is each each face is separated out by the claw marks. Yeah, and I, um, I believe it's it's very difficult when you're talking about Alistair Pearson because. Um, I mean, for one thing, I don't think that's his, his real name. Um, Alistair Pearson is a construct. And he used to do interviews in fan magazines. And the interviewer was him interviewing Alistair Pearson. <laughs> and uh, a lot of people thought that the interviewer was going to really rough ride because Alistair was really rude to him. And it's just comedy. He's just a very creative person. Um, and so a lot of the things he said in interviews, I still don't know whether or not they're true. Things like when he did the first pencil sketch for Silver Nemesis, he said he did the swastika background on Hitler's birthday. I don't know if that's true. It's a great story. Um, and similarly, he said he submitted the survival canvas to WH Allen, or to, 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 to um, Target, and they said it needs something else, and so he got a scalpel out and just slashed it. Now, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's actually what he did, but it's a great story, and it, it, it's a great cover. That's information that I was not aware of. That's definitely going to change my perspective of those covers when I get to them on this podcast in a couple of years. But it's it's lovely that, I mean, he, um, I suppose in the same way as Terence Dix, you know, he, he got to a point where he knew he could bash out a cover with a formula, and so some of his... Um, you know, those blue spine ones, that um, the reprints. Some of his reprint covers are a bit simple, but they do the job. But the ones that he did for the the McCoy era, I think, are among the very best of the range. Um, you know, he starts very strong. I think Paradise Towers is his first one, and then each one just has a really interesting concept, like the um, Delta and the Bannermen, the the positioning of the the Shimmer on Egg and the satellite and the Shangri-La logo is an inverted Mickey Mouse. Wait a minute. Okay, I have owned that book for 35 years, and I can picture the cover in my head right now, and I have never caught on to that. Yeah, and it's, 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 the um, Happiness Patrol is a, uh, in the background because he wasn't allowed to use the Candyman because the Candyman in the book doesn't look like the Candyman on TV. But he use a detail of the Candyman's blue pimply face in the form of an A in the background. So you've got Helen A represented. That, that I remember, yes. No, so yes. Okay. Loads of these little loads of these little things that uh, I mean I funny enough, I thought it was a triangle and then one when, when I published my entry on, on that particular book, one of my friends went, Mate, it's an A and look at it Oh, I suppose it is. No, there's no suppose it's an A. <laughs> so I love the fact that on his best covers Alistair Pearson always sneaks something in that um is really pertinent and just adds a little extra dimension to the, the artwork. It's, it's stunning. I have called up the cover to Delta and the Bannerman now, and, you know, I am embarrassed to admit I've never noticed that before, but now that I see it, and I was at Disney World last month, I, I, I cannot unsee this ever again. That's amazing. <laughs> it's brilliant. That is genius level. So, uh, speaking of genius level, let's turn back to you for a moment. Uh, when I went to... <laughs> that's, that's just... That, that's ridiculous. No. <laughs> but I'll take it. Thank you. When I went to send you the recording link on Twitter, uh, I noticed that Tom Baker was 
trending, which when you see an actor in their 80s trending on Twitter on an otherwise ordinary Wednesday morning, one starts to panic. But it turns out it was it was just a spontaneous outpouring of affection for Tom Baker throughout fandom, which happened enough times to reach the trending counter. It was not actually any bad news. So certainly glad about that. On, on my feed here, it's um, I think it's because there's uh, you know uh, one of those polls that comes around first doctor, best doctor, and all, and and currently um, I can see trending Rose Tyler, eighth doctor, Peter Capaldi, and Tom Baker. Um, I don't think any of them are are, are dead. I hope so. <laughs> I have Rose Tyler trending as well, but yes, not because uh, the character has passed away. Yeah. As I mentioned to you um, earlier, um, I used to have a job where part of my job was kind of chasing obituaries, and as a consequence, I and the, the nickname of the Jim Reaper. So I'm always very sensitive when it comes to celebrity deaths, um, especially because a lot of my friends, if one of their favourites dies, I get the blame. And I, I don't, I haven't even worked in that job for like three years, but uh, they still get oh, the Jim Reaper strikes again. And this this particular month has been very difficult for that with uh so many beloved figures um i mean olivia newton john just the other yes. day and obviously we've lost bernard cribbins and david warner and it's it's just i think it's just a sign of as you're getting older and there are more celebrities that you recognize and, and identify with it's just a a facet of that hopefully it's not going to get as bad as 2016 which was which was so bad the the man who used to do the BBC's obituary program every year at New Year had to ask to have a second edition created because there were so many celebrity deaths that needed to be marked. Yeah, it's been similar here in the States. We lost in the last week Nichelle Nichols from Star Trek, and then we lost a very long-time sports announcer who'd been uh, calling sports for 67 years, and I did a double obituary on my show uh, last week i try and keep up with all these celebrity deaths doctor who related but there are some weeks where it just gets to be too much like the week that bernard cribbins passed away yeah and for everyone else we've got te- uh, toby haydock so he can look after uh, everybody else and write their obituary for the guardian or whoever um <clears throat> but it, as i said uh, i was on a podcast uh, last week the reality bomb podcast and uh, talking about bernard cribbins and the fact that it's a kind of immortality to have a fandom who care enough to, you know, to keep you going. Uh, and the fact that we've got Bernard Cribbins, who we haven't even seen his last episodes and we're not going to probably see them until next year. So uh, we've always thought he was, thought he was immortal. And in that way, he's, he's going to live on. Um, kind of in the same, um, when Tom Baker goes, I don't think he's going to actually die. I think he's just going to transcend into another form. And, <laughs> you know, yes. um, he'll, he'll suddenly go to whatever the afterlife looks like and go, oh, Bugger it, it was true. <laughs> there is a god. <laughs> he probably has enough big finish recordings completed but not yet released that will uh, possibly outlive him. Even even if he survives another 10 years, he probably has enough big finish to keep going beyond that. I've certainly got enough to keep me going for a long time because I'm so behind with them. But like, pretty much, well, like all the modern doctors who've done it, he's now got more episodes recorded for big finish than he did for TV. 
Um, yes, because he was only on TV for seven years, and he's been doing big finish, I think, for longer than that, and more often than that, because you don't have the same worries about only being able to do a certain number of uh, TV episodes in a year. Big Finish has enough scripts to do, I think, a story daily. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it, I mean, the first few were a little bit weird, but I think um, he settled into the, the rhythm of it. And, you know, it's lovely to hear, like, Louise Jameson putting so much effort to make sure that her voice is the same note that she was using all those years ago. It's, um, it's a lovely fan service, Big Finish. I think it's an incredible thing. I've actually just reached the Louise Jameson years in the books, and I've been looking at the TV episodes as I read along. So her first Target novelization started coming out in the late 77 with Talons of Wing Chiang and the aforementioned Face of Evil with the Jeff Cummins cover. Now, when you watch her on television, it's remarkable that 45 years ago, she was putting so much effort into the lines and finding the characters. And just watching now, I'm in awe of the work she was doing 45 years ago. It's incredible to know that she is still doing that now for her big finish work, just as much as she did on television for Philip Hinchcliffe and Graham Williams. I think she's, I mean, that's one of the characters that you really notice. This is, this is Terrence Dick's, on his hack period, because I think he, I think I'm right in saying he did all of Leela's stories, and some of them get more effort than others. Um, I think the Sunmakers is is surprisingly good. There's a lot of little tw- uh, tweaks and additions that he puts in there, but most of them are just this is what the story is in book form. But um, you really notice how much Louise brought to the role because Leela's quite generic on the page. It's a bit like with um, when you read a, a master story and you really miss Roger Delgado's voice because the the dialogue alone doesn't carry over how much he brought to the part. Right. Yeah, with Terence, it's interesting because her first book is Talons of Wang Chiang, and that's one of Terence's longest and most, I think actually it is his most longest, 34,000 words and most detailed. And then the bookend of that is Sunmakers, which was his last Tom Baker book, and that was in the 80s when he moved on from doing eight or nine books a year. The problem is everything else in between those two stories, he was doing eight or nine books a year, barely 100 pages. So there wasn't a lot of room for characterization. Yeah, and then especially when you've got some of those sick passes as well. The uh, He's really rushing through them. But it's, I, I mean, I, I, I was looking at um, Towns of Wang Chang just the other, the other week again, and it's surprising because it, it doesn't feel like he's skimping. You know, you, you get pretty much all the major beats that you want from the thing, but he's also adding a level of social, economic, social economic um, background to the stories. Like he's, he's explaining these are the poor seats, these are the rich seats, these are, and that strange woman who's walking around late at night. He gives her a very um, delicate and dignified career, other than what you might expect from a woman who's walking the back streets of East London at night. Yes. The yeah. the waitress in the gambling club, as opposed to the character on television, who was most certainly not a waitress in a gambling club. Yeah, she was very much uh, an unlucky mistress of the night, wasn't she? <laughs> in fact, if you look at the online transcript for Talons, that character is described in the crudest possible term for her profession. <laughs> well, there's one, there's one missing. The, the old lady becomes an old man in the book, doesn't she? Yes. Uh, the, the ghoul. The and ghoul, you, yes. you don't get anything uh, quite as beautiful as the uh, I wouldn't want that served up with onions. <laughs> it's enough to make it all sick. <laughs> he was taking out some of the most extreme uh, Robert Holmes uh, commentary and opinions and making it a little more socially acceptable for the kiddies. Yeah, yeah, probably quite right too. 
So I was going to say, I'm just about entering the doldrums of Terence Dix's 95-page Robots of Death novelization period, so the books are going to get much shorter for me. You are, of course, on the other end of that. You are now in the late 80s, early 90s. You are at the 175-page novelization, which add much more detail than you were able to get on television for a three-part story. And I think you have Curse of Fenric yet to come, which is the great granddaddy of target books in, ter- in terms of length. So let's just backtrack to Escape to Danger. This was a project of the pandemic, I believe? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I read the books as a child. I went to my local library in South Liverpool, and there were those hardback editions, which were uh, they're always laminated by the library service with thick plastic that flaked away like Scaroth's face. And uh, <laughs> some of them are those weird, um, were they White Lion editions? Yes. The ones with the, 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 the Hartnell novels with Tom Baker's with Tom face Baker slapped on the, on the front. Yeah. Like a sort of weird explosion of prog rock. Which was completely misrepresentative, and I think that's one of the reasons why I didn't at the time read um, the Crusaders. I have no memory of reading the Crusaders at the time, and this is in the late seventies when I first started reading the books. Uh, and then Christmas, nineteen eighty-one, um, Father Christmas brought me four novels. He brought me um, uh, Loch Ness Monster, Ark in Space, uh, Keys of Marinus, and Carnival of Monsters. Oh wow! And then soon after, my parents took, I'd, I'd done well in my exams or something, and my parents took me to a bookshop in Liverpool that's no longer there called Wilson's Bookshop. And it was one of those very traditional, very slender, multi-story, like a terrace. And uh, on the upper floor of that, they had every single Doctor Who book, as far as I could tell. And when my parents said, you can pick two, and I was just overwhelmed. I was thinking, how do I pick two? It's like Sophie's Choice, only only better. Uh, and And... I, I I think I read every single one of the books up to that point um, that I could find, but I now now I'm reading the books. I realised that there were so many I missed. There were so many I, I just didn't find. And you know, I know that pretty much all of the televised eighty stories I got, uh, and I got most of the McCoys, but I was skimping so many. And then around about um, nineteen eighty five, eighty four, end of eighty four, beginning of eighty five, I joined the Doctor Who local group in in Liverpool. And I became part of the pirate VHS network. So suddenly I could watch the old episodes. I didn't need the books anymore. So I was watching, I think the very first pirate copy I got was the pirate planet, coincidentally. Oh, wow. Uh, and then I saw Ark in Space, Death of the Daleks, Robots of Death, The Chase. I had the choice of seeing either Dalek Invasion of Earth or The Chase. And I said, well, I've seen the movie. I want to see The Chase. And weirdly, I've always loved it because of that choice, because it was the wrong choice, but it was also the right choice. So, you know, although I stuck with the books, they became harder to find after 1985, because for some reason, Doctor Who stopped being quite as popular. So, I wonder why. It's almost entirely coincidental, I'm sure. And (laughs) over years, you know, I've had friends who cared about the books more than I did, so I just gave them away. You know, I didn't realize there was a, a whole economy there, and uh then late 2020 i how can i phrase this i stumbled across a dodgy torrent that um <laughs> suddenly gave me a an, an ebook version of all of the novels uh and i i thought right okay well, that's my new year's resolution so january 2021 i'm going to start reading all the books and then i didn't 
and I moved house and then uh, the universe gave us a very kind pandemic and loads of people I knew were learning how to cook and suddenly rushing into, oh, we've got to watch everything and do everything. And I just thought, take your time. They think this is going to be over in six weeks. And I was already looking at the projections and they said, no, this is going to be around for a long time. So I didn't want to rush into anything. But eventually in June 2021, so the pandemic had been going for about three or four months, three months then. So this is 2020, I think we, I think we mean now, 2020? So it's 2020, I do apologize. Yes. Uh, I'm terrible when it comes to linear time. Um, so 2020, <laughs> uh, and it was June when I thought, right, I'm going to sit down and read Doctor Who and the Daleks, as it was, because uh, it was the Target edition. And um, I thought, I think I should probably do something to make sure I stick at this. And I thought a blog would be a good way of doing it because if I do it publicly then I'll be shamed if I right. suddenly decide to give up but just in case life got ahead of me I thought I'm not going to publish the blog until I've done 20 chapters so once I got to book number 20 um, then I published my first entry and then uh, that meant I had a bit of a backlog that meant I was always ahead of the game and uh, yeah I've been I'll just work my way through them. So when you say I'm up to Curse of Fenric, I actually finished the whole project a year ago, but the entries are scheduled that far in advance um, that all I've been doing is the day before the chapter is due to be published, um, I'll, I'll reread it. So with a year's hindsight, I can go back and go, oh, that's a terrible phrase, or no, you've got that wrong, and just tweak it and, and get it fixed. Um, so I'm now rereading my entries that i wrote a year ago oh wow uh and and then last week i decided i should probably do some cross-linking so for the first time i've now linked if there's a reference to um the doctor who and the cybermen in revenge of the cybermen hopefully there should be a link taking you between them so so what was your reading pace like? I'll tell you that when I first started my novelizations in publication order, this was in 2016, right after the U.S. presidential election when I needed a distraction, and I was reading one episode per day in the book, stopping at the appropriate cliffhangers, and I was doing a marathon-length blog post uh, for each day, and that made it about two and a half months before I burned out, and the project sputtered out in the middle of Planet of the Spiders. So I'll say you were much smarter than I was to wait 20 books before you did your first post to give yourself a backlog. Um, what was your reading pace like? Were you doing one episode a day? Were you doing a book a day, a book a week? I was doing a lunchtime. So all it was was um, I'd make my lunch, and then I'd uh, luckily, we had a very good summer. Is um, I live in Manchester now, in the north of England, and we they say we're only the eighth wettest place in the country, but I think the other seven are in the sea because it rains a lot here. But that year, we had a beautiful summer, so every lunchtime I'd sit out in the sun and read. And it was I wasn't setting myself any kind of target. It was uh, the first few books. It would take maybe th uh, three or four days to get through a book. Uh, and then well, I've always had this weird thing where I can't necessarily uh, just pick up a book and read. Um, I tend to read if I'm um, traveling. But of course, during the pandemic, I couldn't travel. Uh, so I, was, I tended to just be reading at lunch times. And then as I, as I could feel I was getting towards the end of a book, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd maybe finish it off at bedtime. 
right? Uh, but then when you start getting through the first few, so you get to get through the first three big novels, and then you get the Terran Sticks novels, you can tend to read them in about a day and a half, two days. Um, and then the, th- the thin Terrence books you get. Um, yeah, Image of the Fendal took a lunchtime. You can pretty much read Image of the Fendal at the same pace that you can watch it. <laughs> so, uh, and I knew there wasn't very much in there to, to pick up on. So, um, then when they start, when you get the Nigel Robinson books, when he, when he starts editing them, you suddenly start getting thicker books again. So um, by that point, uh, I knew I had a critical mass. I knew I was going to complete the project, but I was I was reading a lot of books for the first time. I'd never read any of the Donald Cotton books. Oh wow! Uh, and and Mission sorry, uh, the Mythmakers was an absolute explosion. I, I had no idea what, what was waiting for me. I thought it was so funny. It was really clever. The increasingly tenuous ways he got that narrator into the scene. Uh, running back and forth across a battlefield, hiding behind a bush, just out of sight of a camera, you know, for the televised episode, um, and losing an eye every few chapters. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then when I got to the McCoy books, I I knew that we were getting something extra special there, and, and the John Peel books. It's it's strange. I I. I now have a memory of really disliking John Peel, and I don't know where that came from. It might have been the new adventures. But when I started reading the books, and I was thinking, these are great. Where did I have this bad feeling? And then I heard uh, an interview with him on a podcast, and he's so if, um, modest and self-effacing and charming. And I just thought, you know what? It must have just been professional jealousy that I wish I'd written a missing adventure or a new adventure, and he did. I don't know what it was. Maybe it's just because he was the first one out of the gate. But um, I was really pleased to sort of change that opinion of him because all of his target books are fantastic. Yeah, If you were on Records Doctor Who in the late 90s, there was a big controversy when his War of the Daleks came out. And I'm saying Daleks in the American way because I just it sounds wrong if I say it the proper way for some reason. It's okay. I'm from, I'm from the north of England. We pronounce the, the, the thing that you, ha- you submerge in water as bath. And uh, we have flat vowels, so I'm not going to pick anyone up for pronunciation. It's not a bath, it's a bath. <laughs> bath is closer to the American pronunciation as well, so that's one more <laughs> thing we have in common. Uh, so he had uh, written War of the Daleks, and this was the novel that famously retconned Remembrance of the Daleks so that Scarrow was not actually destroyed. And this news hit records doctor who which was a remembrance of the daleks house like a thermonuclear detonation mm-hmm. and john became very unpopular and sides were taken and john was gracious enough to keep posting on the group throughout all this unpleasantness but it wasn't until i got to see him speak at a convention in new york for the first time in 2013 that i realized i had taken the wrong side of that debate and then i reread war of the daleks and it's actually a very good book it, it must have been that because um, I haven't read either of those books, and I did read the previous ones he did for those ranges, um, and I was just coming on uh, onto the internet at that point, so I just discovered Records Doctor Who, and it's almost in, almost guaranteed. I think you're right. It must have been I saw a side, I picked the wrong one, and. Uh, I mean, a, a fan, I went to a Gallifrey convention in LA and a fan came up to me and it was one of those moments when you think, is this dangerous? 
or is it okay? And he said, I download the internet. I download the entire internet. I download all the postings on all the forums. And he said, and I've noticed you've changed. You were, when you first came onto the internet, you were really aggressive and you were fight, you're a champion for different causes. And, and he said, what happened in 2002 that changed your posting style? I said, I got a job working in social media professionally and I realized that being angry on the internet is just not the way to go. It just pisses everyone off. And <laughs> yeah. um, So it's entirely possible I was swayed by whoever one of my friends had decided that John Peel was the Antichrist because he's not. And, you know, it was as much of a, a choice as uh, Russell T. Davis deciding that Gallifrey had gone. And everyone loved that. Everyone thought that was a really clever thing, even though it had been done right. in the books before. Uh, I don't know. We're a fickle bunch of us fans, aren't we? And um, we, we take our sides. Uh, but at least, at least online, I've stopped being quite so angry because I know what it's like to moderate that professionally and it's uh it's not nice i have been on a couple of convention panels with john peel in new york and i have interviewed him twice once for this podcast we covered dalek invasion of earth and i had him on trap one discussing his new adventures so i consider him a friend he's very gracious very generous with his time genuinely loves the show loves talking about the show and the fact that I was on the wrong side of that debate 25 years ago still embarrasses me, but he holds no grudges. So I have to say, I'm really glad that I came around on that one. I once reviewed, I'm not going to mention who it is. I once, re- I once reviewed a book. I once reviewed a BBC Doctor Who book. Uh, and it was co-written. I'm going <laughs> to put as many clues as I can. And it was co-written. And one of the writers is a friend of mine, and the other one isn't. And my review is quite scathing. And the other author, when he found out that I was in the room at this party, he, th- he thrust me up against the wall and started shouting abuse at me. Um, yeah, he took that quite personally. And it's just because I didn't like his book. So I can appreciate it from the point of view of an author when you when you read a review, and I I know you know reviews matter. We we care what people say about our work. I've had it done to me, and you think I think the best thing you can do is just go that's your opinion and move on. But we don't do we we just we take it personally. So it's like when I've been reviewing the toys, I've always tried to think about somebody spent some time building this toy and designing this toy and trying to get the most playability out of it. I don't want to make the their lives difficult by saying it's 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 bad i'll try to accentuate the positive um right but sometimes you can't sometimes so sometimes i I think the temptation to go for the jugular is is sometimes too great um it's probably why i don't do many reviews anymore because i'm just not that much i'm not that much fun (laughs) i'm too middle of the middle ground in my reviewing one thing that I've noticed in my reread is that I have changed my opinion on a lot of the books. And of course, I'm only you know entering 1978 now, so I have the mid-80s output and the Donald Cottons yet to come. I have read every Target, but in some cases, like The Rescue and The Romans, I have not read those books since the late 80s. So when I come back to them, it'll be almost a brand new reading experience for me, similar with Planet of the Giants and Smugglers. The last few Terence Dick's books I would have read, but only once, and I have very little recollection of them. So I'm very curious to see if my opinion will change. So what I wanted to ask you is, as you went through the entire run, and you read the entire series during the pandemic, 
what were the books that improved the most in your estimation? What were the books that may have uh, been much less impressive now than they were back in the 1970s or 80s? It's funny when you when you come into something like this and you might have a uh, you know, criteria that you've set. So for me, it was I knew I wanted to do a summary of the story. Then I wanted to note things that um, you might want pointed out to you as you're reading the story. So does it stick with the continuity of the TV show? Does it get the continuity wrong or does it change it in an interesting way? Does, uh, has it got any characters that have got new backstories? Um, largely because of Malcolm Hulk, because all of his books have got really beautiful viewpoints that you wouldn't have got from the TV show. Um, so there were some books I was reviewing, and if they, if they didn't have anything that I could really review, it was disappointing. So I think the worst review I gave was to the Ice Warriors, because in the intervening years, I've, I've discovered that this supposed golden calf that all the old fans said is one of the great ones because it doesn't exist and then it, it largely came back and I saw it and thought this is really boring and it, the story is so back and forth and then I read the novel and thought yeah you've just done the script in book form it, there's nothing to it so it's it was a bad story in my mind a bad story which became a bad book um, but there are loads that I'm discovering for the first time as I said so the Crusades the Crusaders is a stunning um, cinematic uh, experience. It, it's so, so good. And all the Donald Cotton ones are good. Um, then with that criteria of um, I want something more than the TV show when I've already got the, v the VHSs of them or the, you know, now the DVDs and the Blu-rays, um, all of the McCoys have something special about them except Silver Nemesis. The fact that... Um, is that Kevin Clark? Yeah, Kevin Clark yes. um, is quite brazen about the fact that he just took the money. That's all he wanted was to take the money. So um, it shows, and it's really disappointing. And there's, there's a point where he thinks, oh, I'm near the word count and just rushes the ending. There's no effort to, to put in. Even explain the things that might have been cut or things that he couldn't have said. You know, he, he just puts no effort into it at all. So I think that was very disappointing. But... There are so many books that I've loved, so many books that I've come away from thinking, that's still great. I loved it as a child. I've loved it now. Or I've discovered for the first time that, you know, and there were so many ones that um, Ian Martyr became, I knew Ian Martyr was a favourite, but he just became a firm favourite with this. Same with Malcolm Hulk. Um, everything David Whittaker did. Um, Nigel Robinson, he very selflessly took on a lot of the books that no one wants to touch. And uh, I think he improved every single one of them. All the um, all those Hartnell ones and the the, you know, the Troughton one he did, um, they're all beautiful little books. So you know, I'm I'm really grateful to Nigel Robinson. I became a real fan of him. What's funny is when I when I got Underwater Menace, I think it was just after I had joined Rec Arts Doctor Who, and that was when I learned that Underwater Menace was considered the biggest turkey of them all. Doctor Who's Plan Nine from Outer Space, the absolute worst thing ever. I experienced it through the book first, and it wasn't until after that that I saw a very bad Nth Generation copy of the surviving Episode 3. When I read the book, I didn't have any understanding as to why this was considered the bad story. Then I watched the surviving episode. Uh, I, I won't do the uh, Joseph First impersonation, but you can <laughs> hear it in your head as I'm, re as I'm referencing it. Then I saw the reconstructions, and... When I got to part four, 
I realized that Nigel Robinson had rescued part four by completely rewriting the ending. Hmm. And this is remarkable fight between uh, the priest who represents uh, the forces of superstition and Zaroff, who represents the forces of science. And they're both, they're both villains. And they have this knockdown drag out fight in the control room as Atlantis is submerging around them. And I thought it was an incredible moment. I couldn't wait to see how it was captured on television. Then you get to the reconstruction and it's not there. It's just Zaroff spends five minutes drowning because he can't reach the button through, through the cage. And he spends five minutes just trying to reach through the cage, and he can't do it. This is the least dramatic and laziest exit for a villain ever. And Nigel Robinson said, we're not going to do this. And he rewrote the story to give you a more uh, dramatic and emotionally satisfying ending. And I didn't even realize he was doing it at the time until I got to the reconstruction. So that's the level of energy that Nigel Robinson is bringing to the books. It's funny as well that um, when I was reading the books, it took me... I noticed when I was rereading and doing the linking between the, the chapters, it took me about, I'll tell you, almost Curse of Peladon. Bear with me a second. I'm just going to have a look for what book was. That, was, that must have been quite early because it had illustrations in it. So it's Yeah, one of the earlier ones. I want to say that was 75. We covered it on this show at the is. very beginning of this year. So it's book 11. And yes. I've been reading, reading all of these books books and reviewing them and saying the illustrations don't match the actor and it took me until Curse of Paladin to think they probably didn't have photos the illustrator probably didn't get given all of those photos so he, he just comes up with someone who looks a bit like Christopher Lee to describe <laughs> King Peladon and um, then it took me a long time more to realise the writers probably didn't see the episodes, they're working from scripts if they're lucky um and then there's a strange, uh, something that really jumped out at me. So you've got the rescue to come, haven't you? Um, yes. And Ian Martyr describes the TARDIS landing in a way that suggests he's seen the tape. Because the TARDIS does a, a slightly weird thing when it lands in that one, where you see the light first. And um, he describes that in the book. And it really jumped out at me as, oh, wow, we're getting into the period now where domestic home videos are available and, and they're, they're duping copies for the writers. So they're actually watching the episodes. And as a consequence, the descriptions are a lot more accurate. Um, but yeah, some of, those, some of those books were, now that we can see the episodes, you think, oh, that's completely unlike. You know, there's, and there's all those episodes that have been found since. Like um, I was there at the BFI when they announced they'd found Underwater Menace, that episode of Underwater Menace. Yes. It was one of the worst kept secrets ever. I looked around the room and there were so many Doctor Who fans who were clearly <laughs> not there for this missing, believed, wiped weekend to look at some lost Dennis Potter play. They were here purely to see what has been found in the Doctor Who library. And um, to see those first few minutes of Galaxy 4 episode and then to see the episode of Underwater Menace and every one of us came away going, but that, that's brilliant. Trout's doing so much stuff you can't hear on the audio track. And um, it's so much fun. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think, you know, when I first started reading these books, I had no, uh, no hope that I'd see these episodes because in those days you didn't get repeats more than, um, like in the UK at least, we didn't get repeats at all except for two stories from the previous year. So in the summer we'd get, I think, um, Pirate Planet and Androids of Tara were repeated that year. And that's kind of as much as you'd see out of time until we got the five faces. So the books were the only way you could experience these stories. 
And I think for a lot of us, when they started releasing the VHSs and you see Planet of the Daleks in all its, um, all its greenery, uh, you can't help but be disappointed because I think the book of Planet of the Daleks makes it seem a lot more exciting. Again, I love the TV show, but I love the book more. And when you see Terror of the Autons, and where's that nesting monster? Where is yeah. that nesting monster? Where's the one on the book cover? And where's the, the one in the illustration? It's, uh, it's just a crackle on a screen. And it's interesting that you mention Brian Hales because for Ice Warriors, his second and sadly final book, he cuts out a lot of the television story. A lot of the arguments are gone. The uh, animal menacing Jamie as he's being dragged across the snow is taken out of the book. Jamie's paralysis is largely taken out of the book. When you go backwards to Curse of Peladon, his first, he adds so many scenes that were not on television. You can go for pages at a time reading all original material that, that is not on TV. So what I've taken to doing over the last few months is as I read the book, I have the episode transcript on screen in front of me. And every chapter, I'll just go back and forth from the book to the transcript to see what's changed, what's missing, what's been added in, what's been, what's been taken out. And that's given me, even after, you know, 37 years after I got my first novelization, that's a really interesting way for me to approach the book's anew, because especially for Terran Sticks, you can see what words he chooses to take out of towns of Wang Chiang to make it a little more acceptable for the kids. And then you realize for a book like Curse of Peladon that Brian House is giving you all the stuff that was not on television. So when I get to War Games, I'm especially curious as to what percentage of the page count was taken from the TV scripts versus what Malcolm Hulk added to himself. I'm willing to guess it's about 50-50 adapting the TV series versus just putting in his own new material as Malcolm Hulk liked to do. It's a strange one that because, um, I think a lot of people before they saw the VHSs, actually before they saw the DVDs, I think that was the che- the turning point for the war games. A lot of people assumed the war games must be rubbish and it must be full of padding because the book is so slim. But the way that Malcolm Hulk approaches it is here's, here's the dramatic beats here's the space I've got, and then he fills it appropriately. And I didn't feel I was missing anything, even though there's so much that's missing. Um, but also I didn't feel that the TV episodes were padded. I th- what I love about the, the war games, and I think it's possibly just the nature of how it was written between Terrence Sticks and Malcolm Hulk, is every two episodes you get a new villain. So, And each one is bigger than the previous one. And they're building and building and building until you get to the end when you get the time lords and it's it's a big shift and i think it's you know terence sticks was very hard on it because he remembered how it was written but um i think it's a stunning story and i love the fact that malcolm hook goes i've only got this page count i can't tell every single part of the page i'm not going to try i'm just going to tell the story and it, it, it they're two different beasts but they're beautiful yeah i've got that coming up in about three months and i'm very excited there are some books that i would gladly skip to get to war games that much faster but unfortunately i've promised my audience to look at everything in publication order so that is a pleasure i will have to defer is that is that book 50 is that book 50 it is it's the 50th television story and the 50th book <laughs> which is lovely which is a nice little bit of synchronicity I do remember watching the TV for the first time when it hit PBS in the mid-1980s in the States, and I'd already read the book. 
And there were some parts of the book that I was very sad were not captured on television because Patrick Troughton is a lot more Troughton-esque even in the book uh, compared to the television. So I'll get into that in more detail when that comes up in a few months. So I understand that you have a top 10 list for us. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm a fan at heart. So, you know, we like lists, don't we? Uh, I was oh, just thinking, uh, when I got to the end of this and I thought, what have I learned? What have I taken away from this? And I thought inevitably I'd, I'd need to have some sort of top 10. But just to make it difficult for myself, I didn't allow any author to have more than one entry in the top 10. So each of the, place, uh, the, the positions is a different author. Because otherwise you would have three Malcolm Hulks, uh, two Terrence Dicks, three Ian Martyrs. I see what you mean. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Also, this is not the best. It's not a top 10 best. Paul Cornell once came up with this phrase, which is favorite is a different thing to best. Best is the thing that we all agree is a sort of um, the pinnacle of, of production or writing or, you know, whatever it is. So Caves of Androzani is clearly the best, but, you know, my, my favorite stories include Android Invasion. I know Android Invasion is not the best, but I just love it. I absolutely passionately love it. So this is a mixture of the best and just the ones that I love blindly. Um, but I'll start off with Dinosaur Invasion. Um, when I started reading the books as a uh, eight years old, and the, the books are written for a, about a 14 year old. So uh, I was aware that I was reading above my reading age and I knew that my reading age was be getting better. Right. But Malcolm Hulk has a scene where he describes people's fingernails. And I'm still to this day, a terrible nail biter. And to discover that there's somebody telling me this story who can who can tell if you bite your nails was a, a revelation to me, and it just made me realise that you can you can see things that might not be obvious if you're telling a story. Uh, I I love that introduction with the uh, the Scottish football fan hungover and discovering that the the world has ended and it's been taken over by dinosaurs. I mean, we've all had Sunday mornings like that, haven't we? Um, so that would be. Definitely one position in the arc in space. Ian Martyr brings horror. Really wet, dripping horror. Yes. One of the things I've been really disappointed by is that fans have a, a really boring way of interviewing writers. So I, I look through every single interview of every single target author I could find, and nobody said, who are your influences? Who are the books that you read? It took me to get to David Fisher's rewrites of his books where his son says, oh, my dad was a passionate fan of these type of books. And I thought, finally, one author who I've got an insight into where he's coming from. I want to know which books Ian Martyr was reading. I want to know if it's more than just Lovecraft because uh, there's very much a Lovecraft flavor in it. But I want to know, you know, was he reading, is James Herbert appropriate for the time? I don't know. Um, ben Aronovich um, Remembrance, I think you mentioned before, that that's kind of the, the urtext for, for modern Doctor Who books now, you know. Yes, the prototype new adventure. And the funny thing is, I remember at the time when the story came out, and the coolest lad in our, in our I was still in uh, um, the latter part of school at that point, and the coolest lad in our school came in saying, did anyone see Doctor Who last night? Because it's Liverpool, by the way. That's the voice of it. Uh, he said, "Oh, it's amazing! This bloody big Dalek comes around the corner and blows everything up." And it was, um, f you know, for just a few weeks, Doctor Who was cool. 
And then the following week, Bertie Bassett appeared in The Happiness Patrol <laughs> and, and nobody spoke of it again. But the thing I loved about Remembrance is people just assume, oh, it, it's got all this backstory, it's got all this history. But a lot of it is created by Ben Aronovich and certainly in the book, you know, you read it thinking, oh, this must be a reference to a past story. No, a lot of it's him. A lot of it's just him going, this is what I would imagine um, might have happened. So the reason why Remembrance is so loved is because it's, it's rich in a way that doesn't alienate you. It takes you along and says, here's the backstory. And it doesn't matter whether you, you've read or seen Genesis of the Daleks or the first Dalek story. Um, I'm not going to do a potted review of all of these. I'm just going to rush through them. But um, City of Death has to be on the list. James Goss is an old mate of mine, and it's always awkward when your friends write things or, or do things. And you know, It's like Morrissey said, we hate it when our friends become successful, not because we resent <laughs> them or, or feel jealous of them, but we just don't want to be put into a position where we say, I didn't like that. Um, to have read the novel of City of Death and then to read the novelization, and they're, they're two different beasts. And James Goss has a, a, a brilliant voice. Uh, his style of writing is, is stunning. And uh, the novelization is an absolute joy. Um, I've mentioned Crusaders. It's got to be in there. I think David Whittaker gave us so much as the granddaddy of... I think he can definitely be said to be the, the midwife of Doctor Who. Yes. If Sidney Newman uh, and Verity Labatt want to claim to be the parents, he's definitely the midwife. And Crusaders is an epic cinematic journey that is um, incredible. Speaking of historicals, Mythmakers has to be on the list. Um, I, I think I possibly prefer the Romans, but because he's novelizing somebody else's story, I decided to go with the Mythmakers. Um, we've already talked about that, though. Uh, Ghostlight is next for me. Mark Platt. Um, again, he's a fan, and he's, he, he gets his one shot at writing for, for the TV show, and he comes out with one of the most incredibly rich stories. I don't think you can understand it in one go. Certainly the book. I, I was flicking looking up the references but he's also aware that he's he's of that generation now where people will videotape it if they want to see it again and they will see it again and they will rewatch it and get more and the book is more than just you've already got the videotape it so my last three um i've got to have a john peel in there it feels a cheat because um dalek's master plan is novelized across two books but i can only pick one book so it has to be mutation of time because mm. it's the second half it's the the bit that we've got the fewest amount of surviving episodes it's the bit that he um adds the most to and also he's been a bit kind of slavish to terry nation's desires but now he's writing um somebody else so uh he's 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 having a bit more fun and he's it's a lot more witty the conversation late at night between the Doctor and Sarah Kingdom at the very beginning of the book, which opens the door for missing adventures and makes her a proper companion rather than a long-term guest star, blew me away when I would have been about 16, 17 years old. And I still find that one of my favorite passages in the book. It's, um, I, I really, really love all of those Dalek stories because they're so much better than they really should have been. Um, and I love the fact that in, the, in that podcast, when he talks about Terry Nation's a bit of an old chancer, you know, he's, uh, he was very happy to sponsor young talent if it involved him not doing any work and them doing all the work. <laughs> but, uh, we forget, you know, we accuse him of being a hack because he, he sold the same script so many times. Um, but it was a good script. You know, if you look at the Daleks and then you look at planet, of the Daleks 
and you look at Death to the Daleks. If Big Finish decided to kind of retell that story on an ice planet and then on a moon and then under the sea, I'd, I'd be more than happy, you know, because it's a good story and, you know, it, all he wants to do is make a little change and change it from a jungle to a, an ice planet. I'd watch, I'd watch that. It'd be great. Um, and uh, I'm saving an odd one for last. So I'm going to go with Rose. So Russell oh. T. Davis um, brings us the new series. And he brings us a book that is both um, respectful of the past, but also bringing us up to the present. Uh, there's so much in there that is, is new to the book. There are new characters. There's a whole new um, logical family as a part of this story. Yes. Which enriches Rose and enriches Mickey as a, as a character. Um, I think Russell had very nice intentions with Mickey in that he is what Rose is running away from. And then they cast Noel Clark and they suddenly realize they've only got one non-white face in the regular cast and they've made him lazy, stupid and cowardly. So automatically Mickey needs to be on a journey that's slightly slower than Rose's. Whereas in the novelization, we find out Mickey's a good guy. It's just that he's never really been tested because people have such low expectations for him. Why, why would he need to test himself? Um, also the, the luxury of Rose where we've, we've already met her. We've already seen what she's capable of. In the novel, he's not afraid to make her look selfish and prejudiced and, and quite bitter. And, and with good reason, because she's been messed about by an ex-boyfriend and she's still saddled with her mum, who's got very low ambitions. And um, But it's a great book. And it's you can hear Russell telling it to you. You can hear his his voice guiding you through the story. And one point I want to say as well with regard to Rose is he almost goes the full Ian Martyr in that he plays up the horror, the graphic horror oh, of the last act. And you have the microplastics that we ingest every day coming back to life because the autons are able to activate even the microplastics inside of you, which is a horrific detail, but it's really fun to think about. And to have a little subplot with loads of characters who we don't see but we're aware of and they get their comeuppance, and it's it's joyful. <laughs> you think, yes. oh yes, that that lovely. I love a lot of horror. I, I I love a good horror movie, and that vicarious thrill when you get someone who really deserves a nasty death. <laughs> um, and then of course it's the, my final slot on the top ten, and there's someone who's been conspicuous by his absence. I think Terence Dix is lauded because he did so much, um, and a lot of what he did wasn't that great. It was just hack work, but his later books, like his, especially his later Pertwee's, are, are stunning. I, I love those those later Pertwee books. But I have to pick Day of the Daleks because it was one of the first ones I read. It had a prologue. That was a completely new scene. It's yes. so disappointing when you watch the uh, the TV episodes and it doesn't have that prologue. When they were making the, the, the DVDs, I campaigned to get that prologue dramatized. And they said, oh, we're, spend wow. we're spending our money elsewhere. And I was speaking to Ed Stradling, and, and in the end, they turned down my proposal to, <laughs> to dramatize it. I'd written the script very cheekily, just cribbing from the, the novel. And um, I was speaking to friends who I knew had monster costumes, and you had Daleks, and you had Ogrons, and I just went, come on, let's let's novelize this. Let, let's, let's, sorry, dramatize this, this thing from the novel. And they decided to go elsewhere, probably for the best reasons, but... Um, I was, I was so close to seeing it on screen. Oh, wow. So they'll be my, like my top ten. And then, as I said earlier, I think Ice Warriors and Silver Nemesis, for various reasons, would have to be the uh, the least pucker, the least, uh, 
the least appreciated as far as I'm concerned. But they're all gems in their own little way because they get us reading, and that's important. Yeah, there was a good long period of time in the mid-80s where I was reading Targets every single day to the exclusion of all other books. So the Target books have had a huge <clears throat> percentage of my life. I know that when I met Terrence Dix the one time in 2014, I told him that I read more of his books than I had of Charles Dickens, and he, he flinched. <laughs> but he has had <clears throat> a very big uh, capture on my life, and I actually wrote a Terrence top ten list right after he passed away. And looking at that list now, three years later, I'm not sure that I wouldn't completely reevaluate what's in the top ten. But I, I think given the breadth of doctors that he wrote for, and given that he went from writing very long books, adding a lot of material, to writing incredibly short books that delete a lot of material, and then coming around full circle to Planet of Giants, where he reinstates a lot of the deleted part four for television, or a book like The Smugglers, which is 18 or 19 chapters long and adds a lot of detail for a slim book. I think Terrence is certainly deserving a top 10 uh, of his own. I'll probably go back and revisit that Terrence top 10 after I finish this project in about two years' time. But definitely, Day of the Daleks uh, certainly has to be in consideration for one of his stone-cold best. And then, of course, Auton Invasion, his very first, has to be up there. Talons has to be up there for a variety of reasons. And the book that I read as soon as he died, was Power of Kroll. And even in that one little slim book, which adapts perhaps a less-than-beloved TV story, he adds a lot of value to Power of Kroll, knowing that it's a Robert Holmes story, even though it wasn't Robert Holmes trying very hard. That became a sentimental favorite for me, so I put Power of Kroll in my Terrence top ten, even though, objectively, maybe it's not the best thing he ever wrote, but compared to the television story... I think that's an example of Terrence Dix's genius right there, the things that he can bring to a script that you don't even notice. It's uh, it's not a coincidence I did this deliberately, but I'm wearing a T-shirt right now, which is one I designed, uh, which is a Roboman. And it says, Through the ruin of a city stalk the ruin of a man. And I, I cite this repeatedly as the best opening to any of the, the Target books. But he does a variation on it in a few of the, the stories um, where he, he'll just sum up the entire situation in one beautiful line. Uh, and for that, I, I think he should be celebrated. But also the fact that um, to have in a local library a load of books written by somebody who is consistent and will enrich your word power and will keep you entertained till the end and isn't afraid to change a few little scenes or add a little bit of extra nuance um, if he thinks that it's lacking. I mentioned the, the Sunmakers were, um, after you've got that scene where the rabble throw the, um, the collector over the, the parapet and down to his yes. a very long death, and then he just has the, uh, the crowd looking around feeling faintly embarrassed, <laughs> which I think is great. You know, it's, we had this little rush of excitement, and then now what do we do? Oh, maybe we shouldn't have done that. Uh, so, Jim, what is next for you now that you're, you've finished reading all the targets and you're coming to the end of, of your postings? What is, what is next for you? Well, uh, as you mentioned, uh, on the day that we're recording this, next Saturday, or this Saturday coming, I've got Curse of Fenric coming through. Uh, understandably, that's an epic chapter. Uh, and then it's weekly, Battlefield, Pescatons... Uh, I've got a bonus episode because in the UK on the 29th of August is a bank holiday. 
And what I was doing as, as I was publishing all of these is when there were public holidays or if it was Doctor Who's birthday or if it was my birthday because it's my blog and why not, I published an extra chapter. And that also helped me get ahead. Um, yes. Christmases were a joy because I'd have like four or five days would have a stretch of a book every day. So I've got Power of the Daleks coming. Uh, so I start the, the final run um, at the end of August. And I f- officially finish... Because I've also done the um, the new novelizations of the um, City of Death, Pirate Planet TV movie, Resurrection, Revelation. So I finished Revelation of the Daleks uh, middle of October. I'm not doing the new series. I'm not doing the 21st century because uh, the whole point of this was to do a, a from beginning to end review. Right. Um, and then not doing all of the stories. So at the time of... Uh, we're looking at this um you've got rose and then there's no intention of doing end of the world so i've done rose and then i've done a further reading chapter which just lists the modern stories they've done so far um if they were to release um end of the world and um oh my memory is shot it's absolutely shot uh the uh dickens ghosts uh, the the unquiet dead. the unquiet dead. Thank you. If they were to novelise those, I'd do chapters on those. But the the last proper ones, I've got two final ones, which is David Fisher's Stones of Blood and Androids of Tara. And then uh, on the seventeenth of November, every day, as a thank you for everyone who's followed me for the last two years on this, uh, I'm going to novelise something myself. So oh my it's goodness. a it's a deep tribute to the target books there'll be a chapter of this novelization every day with an illustration per chapter and a book cover in the slatter anderson style that would have been what the book might have had at the time it it wasn't published so uh there's there's my official (laughs) revelation that i've i've Completely unauthorized. It might even get taken down within seconds, but I'm hoping it won't. Uh, I've novelized something that uh, I think needs doing with a lot of love. <laughs> and I, I will say that uh, you have been gracious enough to show me the novelization, and I, I, I read what you showed me with tremendous enjoyment. Uh, so that will be a very fitting final chapter for your journey, your very long journey, so to speak. I think it will. And then, I don't know. Then I don't know. I need to fix my 3D printer. So that might be a thing. Um, I don't know. My mum and dad keep saying, when are you going to do a novel? Uh, I keep thinking, oh. it's there's so much of other people's work to watch, to, to read and to watch. You know, there's a new there's a new Star Wars show coming out in September, and I can't wait for that. I'm, I'm suddenly a massive Star Wars fan again after after years of it just being something I liked as a kid. And The Mandalorian then just mainlined it into my brain. Then. So I've got all of that to do. And I've got and I've got a day job. I've got a day job that, without going into the details of it, is is very stressful. Uh, and I don't want to go into what it actually involves, but it involves the worst people of the internet. So all oh of this, goodness. all of this is how because I, I, it's my profession <laughs> to deal to deal with the internet. And so as a consequence, I need things to distract me when I finish work. So that's why I do all of these things. I've always got little creative projects: designing T-shirts, designing. Uh, posters or making models or 3d printing things so i don't know we'll see 
it is funny you mentioned the new Star Wars series, Star Wars Andor, because I was reading The Face of Evil for an upcoming episode as that <laughs> dropped. And of course, Andor is a character in The Face of Evil, but I dare say that uh, Diego Luna's character will be a lot more interesting than poor old Andor, who only makes it halfway through Face of Evil. I mean, it'd be lovely if um, if the Star Wars Andor had a character with a, a cricket glove on his head as some sort of religious artifact that would be great you know sometimes you know they say oh how can doctor who compete with star wars and sometimes i think it doesn't need to they're two different beasts and uh having having a welsh actor in a loincloth wearing a cricket glove on his head is something that star wars could never dream of doing (laughs) (laughs) but i i do look for cross-pollination because obviously when you're filming Star Wars in 1976 in England, you have a lot of actors who drifted in and out of Doctor Who showing up to do a Star Wars. Like Leslie Schofield went directly from filming Star Wars to filming Face of Evil. And Indira Varma's character in the Kenobi series, I couldn't help but wonder if the character called Tala was not inspired by the same character name in Underworld. That was my literally very first thought when she showed up in the Kenobi series. Well, there's a lot of you know because a lot of the um, the people working on that on those movies were fans of British culture. I mean, there is a, a connection to Space 1999, the Jerry Anderson series that had just finished production as Star Wars was ramping up. So a lot of the spaceships of, or the, there are some spaceships that you see the early drafts of, like the early draft of the Millennium Falcon is very close to an eagle from Space 1999. Oh, wow. uh, and of course, you've got some of the costumes like uh, Bosk, the bounty hunter who's wearing a spacesuit that appeared in the 10th planet. Although well, I don't think it was made for the 10th planet, but it, cause it, it appears in so many uh, British productions around about that period. Um, so yeah, there's the, the, I think it's a natural thing cause I don't think Dr. Who is science fiction. I don't think it should be. Uh, and I don't think star Wars is science fiction. They're fantasy, family fantasy. Yes. And, um, I, I realized that I'm not really a fan of science fiction. I, I just haven't got the patience for the, you know, the, the serious stuff. I want monsters and golden robots and, and campery and nonsense. So where else can we find you on the internet? What's your Twitter handle, uh, for example? Where else can we see your work? And if you want to plug your, your t-shirt store too. <laughs> You've caught me out because uh, it's, it's, I never remember my own thing. So I'm... Um, monster underscore maker on Twitter. Um, and I think I'm either Jimster1971 or Monster Maker on Redbubble. So I've got a little collection of designs inspired by the Target books. In fact, inspired by my friends telling me this is my favorite Target book. And then I thought, what could I do as a design? So it's a very, um, in the style of the old Weetabix cards. So it's very sort of um, low res uh, in terms of uh, numbers of colours in there, and it's um, it's, a, it's a style inspired by the the old Weetabix um, serial cards uh, with a quote from a book. Um, but as I said at the, the top of this, I, I pop up all over the place in some sort of minor role and on so many things. I mean, the Blu-rays. It's funny watching me as a contributor now. I'm watching a, a documentary on the Blu-rays and thinking, "Oh wow, I, I used to have a ginger beard." and now i'm gray and you know uh and i'm still um very much part of the doctor who magazine crew so i don't know i don't know i'll I'll pop up somewhere uh i I find a way (laughs) and i I think i'm on a few more podcasts before the end of the year so 
then I'm going to have you back on this show real soon. I have you slotted yeah. in for an upcoming book, and I won't say which one to spoil the surprise, but uh, I hope to hear a lot more from you on this show before I get to the end of my own journey uh, a couple of years from now. I, I hope so too. There's, um, I mean, you've got a fun run of stories, and um, when you asked me which ones I'd like to do, I didn't pick any of the good ones because I wanted to talk about the novel as you know, as, as, an, as an experience and what the differences are and what the changes are. So I, hopefully we'll have fun. Hopefully we'll have uh, a lot of fun talking about the first one. Uh, we certainly will. So I, I have you, I have you uh, down twice uh, coming up over the next half year, and they're two very different books written at very different times and at very different angles to their TV story in question. So I can't wait to have you back. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk to me, and we'll do this again real soon. It's an absolute pleasure. See you soon. Wasn't that so much fun? Doesn't Jim just add so much value? That was just an amazing interview. Only wish I could have had him on sooner, and we are certainly going to have him back on again. He is on the upcoming calendar. I will not say when, but I am sure you are going to keep an ear out. Some funny things he said, like Sophie's choice, only happier. Funny that he mentions that. That primarily took place across Prospect Park for me in Flatbush, which is one of the better-known Brooklyn neighborhoods. That's where the author of Sophie's Choice settled, and that's where he told the story. Uh, My grandparents were a little bit east of that when they immigrated um, to New York, but My grandparents all had the fortune to get out of that part of Europe, Eastern Europe, before the Nazis took over. There's nobody in my family tree who lived through anything quite as horrific as uh, what Sophie's Choice is about. Something else uh, Jim said, talking about Alistair Pearson, drawing the swastika for the cover of Silver Nemesis on Hitler's birthday. Man, I tell you, Hitler's birthday. If I could get a day pass into hell or inferno or what you call it and if i could have one day a year with hitler i'd bring a chainsaw i'd bring a blowtorch well you can imagine what the old jason would do down there just for the day if i had a day pass um i (laughs) wow just cannot get my head around that story Thinking about the afterlife, my vision of the afterlife, I know I have my religious upbringing that says one thing, there is certainly a Talmudic explanation of what to expect after we pass on to the next realm. I think my preferred version of the afterlife, out of all the different theories that I've read, would be the one from the Albert Brooks movie, Defending Your Life. That movie's about 30 years old now. Very good. I recommend you track it down. 
when I think about what I go through on Earth and whether or not I'm going to have to defend myself in the hereafter. That's always the movie that comes to mind. Uh, that movie does not really touch upon the subject of what would happen to uh, Adolf Hitler in the next life. It's probably just as well that a light-hearted comedy with a philosophical bent would steer clear of that kind of thing. Uh, Defending Your Life takes place in the Los Angeles County, Southern California version of the afterlife. Uh, I'm sure if you were to tailor that towards uh, Brooklyn or New York City, it would look quite different. Uh, anyway, <laughs> wow, I will, I will never look at the cover of Silver Nemesis the, the same way again. And uh, Adolf, I'm coming for you, buddy. We ever wind up in the same place? Hopefully not. Uh, not looking to... Uh, Anyway, let's wrap this up. Thanks very, very much to my guest, Jim Sangster. I will never be able to unhear that story. Next week, we are getting back to our regularly scheduled run of books. Hopefully, much less talk of Hitler until we get to the Sylvester McCoy era. Next week, we are getting to 1978, next time on Doctor Who Literature. We're going to be looking at the January 1978 book, and we are continuing on with the trend of season 14 novelizations. This is not the first novelization with Leela in it, but it is a novelization of the very first Leela story. And I have uh, a guest on from another Doctor Who podcast, one you might know, one you might not. It's certainly very much worth your time, and I will reveal my guest next week. So, until then, thank you for joining me on another episode of Doctor Who Literature. My name is Jason. I'm your host, your editor, your producer. Special thanks to my special guest, Jim Sangster. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at anchor.fm slash Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. If you like the podcast, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels. That's Dr. Who Novels. Under the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage. That's Dr. Who Pilgrimage. And on email at Doctor Who Literature, that's drwholiterature at gmail.com. So be like my previous emailers. Be like Carl and Rosemead. Be like Toby in Houston. And of course, be like Kevin in wherever it is that Kevin is from. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening. And whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Thank <laughs> you.